And welcome back to Triple H 100.1 FM. You are live across Hornsby, really, the wonderful Shire of Hornsby. And you're also listening to Small Biz Matters here on Triple H 100.1 FM. And I'm thrilled to have my first guest back in the studio after COVID. We've we've relaxed it slightly here at Triple H. I'm assuming that's fine. I think it is because there's just one of you. So it's okay. We're, we're within our distance restrictions. We're being very careful here. But... Today we're talking to Jeremy Goff and we're going to be in conversation. Now, I love these sort of programs because it's about having a chat to people who are aware of a particular industry and are passionate about um, what they believe to be what should be occurring and, and, and the changes that need to be made, particularly at the policy level. And what we're going to talk about today is Australia's response to the pandemic. Now, it has been one of the most effective in the world. Nobody could argue that. We're one of the top what is it? Is it a club of five or something like that where we could potentially just open our borders between those five nations? Uh, particularly, which I'm super excited about, is potentially opening with New Zealand because that's the first trip I want to make. Ironically, that success also shows us how, in Jeremy Goff's opinion, how broken our democracy is. Now, we're going to be talking about... Um, these things because you're an expert in strategy, communications and investor relations and Jeremy's here to be what's likely to be a robust conversation about flaws in our democracy revealed by the COVID response and how that is directly impacting small and medium business. Welcome to the program, Jeremy. Thanks, Alexi. Good morning and good morning to your listeners. <laughs> it's great to have you on the program. Now, um, you came to me with this idea of having this discussion because I think what has happened has been some successes and some failures but if nothing else it's really laid bare um, the issues that face small business on a day-to-day level and it's it's exposed I think the policymakers and the legislators to what actually goes on in small business on a day-to-day level and we live day-to-day you know we pivot we change we make decisions we can implement decisions it doesn't take us six months to create a strategy and put it out to market we just go I think I'll do this today and we go and if nothing else we've been able to I guess from a small business perspective, move quickly and implement change quickly, whereas we're watching our policymakers, there's that lag time for them to make decisions and implement. Um, And in some ways that's good because we want them to make the right decisions, but they're also being very slow in their response and we need them to move faster. So I would argue that's one of the things that we need to have happen. But what are the main things that you think that COVID has exposed as, as one of the issues um, that are really affecting small business. If we were on television, you would have seen me nodding to everything you said in that introduction. Look, I think the most striking thing about the COVID response is the speed and effectiveness and the success of the response uh, and such an incredible contrast to how poorly managed the uh, the, sum- the summer bushfires were. Uh, exactly, um, yeah. But, I mean, it, we are... Which, I mean, I suppose they happen faster... <laughs> bushfire moves faster than COVID and I guess in the government's defence um, there, there's no, well there is a way they could have predicted this, that's another argument altogether, but it was so fast moving and frightening what was happening, their reaction in turn was also quite frightening whereas we've had the uh, the ability of having that distance from what's going on with the rest of the world and we've had you know, the luxury of being able to see how it unfolded elsewhere and been able to implement policy um, isn't that something you could say in the government's defence? Look, I don't want to go too much into the, the bushfire response, but what you saw was a government which was... a federal government which was warned, clearly, by every single head of uh, bushfire, rural fire services and emergency services in the country and ignored it. Now, I'll go to what I think the reasons are for that in in the broader discussion, 
Uh, and then they really weren't ready when it when it all happened. Let's put aside where the Prime Minister was and the embarrassment of, of being on holidays. Um, but what we saw with COVID was the two things that I... Th- the, the two factors that I think illust- illustrate why, in general, Australian democracy is a bit broken, um, why that impacts on small businesses as much as it impacts on every other citizen in the country, possibly even more so. Uh, and we saw the government not falling for those two traps during the COVID crisis. So, in my view, the two things that get in the way of our democracy working properly are ideology and corporate interests. The influence of, of corporations over our politics. There's nothing new about that. And and I think most people listening to your program would, would nod their heads in agreement. What we saw in COVID was the politicians just doing the right thing as quickly as possible because we had a real emergency on our hands and it needed to be fixed. So ideology went right out the window. Even some of the real right-wing commentators would... would um, apologetically say things like, oh, well, this isn't a time for ideology now. Mm. To which you'd ask the question, well, when <laughs> is ideology ever appropriate when you're making decisions that affect people's lives? But I think in, in COVID, um, the ideological obsession with budget surpluses went straight out the window. Why? Because actually, when it comes to people's lives, they're not actually that important. And I would doubt at any point that anything came into their minds about votes or the next federal election or their seat when they were thinking about... And, and that is something that is very different to what's happened in the rest of the world. Uh, you know, somewhere like Brazil, um, the, 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 the government was terrified that it, the, the economy was going to grind to a halt, which was going to do, and it tried everything in its power to keep everything open, and that's been at the expense of thousands of lives, and it's still going. We didn't do that. We saw lives over money uh, and over the economy that that was more important but now that we've uh, you know had our very miniature first wave by releasing everything and letting the economy get back and up and going again um, aren't we just um, you know throwing out those notions that lives actually matter look I don't want to go too much into second guessing what the the health experts are saying it seems to me that that governments both state and federal have been following the advice of the health experts and if they're saying we can open things up it's always it's always going to be a balancing act you know five six seven million unemployed people and a whole lot of small business owners whose businesses aren't making any money is not going to be good for anyone's health either Um, i think we bought ourselves time we now have a medical system which can cope Um, we're ready uh, but, I mean, more importantly, what this highlights is, whereas in the past political decisions are heavily influenced by ideology and corporate interests, this time they weren't and we got it right. How do we keep that going? Well, that's a very good question. Let, let's, let's, let's go through a couple of examples of some historical policy initiatives. Look, everyone likes to laugh at politicians, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a favourite game. Politics is almost one of Australia's favourite um, spectator sports and everybody likes to laugh at them for being either morally vacuous or unintelligent or embarrassing or self-interested. When you look at it, though, politics is full of some pretty smart people. There's a lot of people who were Rhodes Scholars, Fulbright Scholars, a lot of people, if you look into it, who, you know, got from from dirt-poor working-class backgrounds who got scholarships to elite schools and have gone on to win prizes at university and, and, and really achieve amazing things. 
Politics. And some of which who are very successful small business owners as well. Well, there you go, exactly. Politics is not a place full of dumb people. Um, there's there's a, a range of, of people reflective of society. Uh, but that's not a, that, that simple answer, which is fun to do because it's always fun to laugh at people. A um, bit of Schadenfreude never goes astray over your morning coffee. That, 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 that explanation isn't, isn't actually one that, that, that holds up. And I think the two things, as I said, the two things that really cause the problem are ideology and corporate inter- interests. I'll give you some examples of the kind of policy decisions that I think are negative in the long term um, and which are driven by those two, those two factors. Certainly the fact that people have been living, unemployed people have been living on $40 a day for a long time now um, indicates that there's some kind of uh, this ideological obsession with the, the budget surplus, I think, drives that. But also, I think, particularly on the conservative side of politics, there's an ideological view that if you are unemployed, you don't deserve any help. If you're unemployed, there's probably something of your fault. This, this implicit message is we, the public, are not going to help you because at some point this is your fault. So why should why should we help you? And a lot of people cleave to that that ideological view. Take the ideology away, and what you're saying is, we think the best way to help people get into work is to make them so poor they can't even afford to buy new clothes to go to a job interview. They can't afford a car to get to the job interview on time as well as taking their kids to school. And more importantly, every dollar that, you, that, that the public purse gives to or transfers to a low-income person gets spent in the economy in small businesses in their local in their local communities you give that person eighty dollars a week they will spend it all in the local milk bar yeah because they have you know instant um uh, <laughs> i was going to say instant asset write-off That's it. <laughs> <laughs> but they've, they've got um you know their, their, their money they haven't got any possibility of saving so it's going to be 100 percent right. spending 100 percent of that money and if they want to stimulate i mean this is what job keeper is this is what job this seeker is, exactly is this right. is what the cash flow boosts are is to stimulate the economy this is exactly right and this is why covid highlights just how silly that ideological obsession with unemployed people is but that also it, it it shows that that was a strategy they implemented at the beginning, which was to give uh, those who spend their money instantly, pensioners, and those who are already on um, some sort of benefit, they gave them, immediately gave them hundreds of dollars to spend because they knew that they would spend it instantly. So the question is, why have we got one set of ideology guiding us with a stimulus package for this particular issue, but we're not using that in our, you know, in our governmental decisions around social services. I can't see into the heads of, of, of every single politician, but I will say it's been an ideological stream that you've seen going for the last 50 years. Yeah, but you can see into the, the wallets. Side. You can see into the wallets of politician. Take me through some of those ideological, uh, I guess, injections into each of the political parties. Well, before I do, I just want to highlight two more really critical policy areas and that'll let me loop around to to your point. I about, hope you're going to say workplace relations. No, I'm not. Well, you should because that is absolutely <laughs> the most important. In my opinion, it's, it's something that just literally has to be scrapped and started again because there is not a single business owner out there who knows innately what to do with someone, whether they be an employee of a, or a contractor, what to pay them, how many allowances to give them, how many hours they can work in a row, whether they can work Saturdays or Sundays at the same rate. It's crazy. 
I, I actually, it's a good point. I will come back around to to industrial relations because yes, I'm so emphatic. Because you're so emphatic. Because you're you're scaring me a bit like Alan Jones. Scares <laughs> Don't you, <so>. no, <laughs> not allowed to use that word in these. <laughs> But also because I think it highlights something about the relationship between the trade unions and the ALP, which is changing, and I think this is quite interesting. But let's just go to uh, a little policy area called like climate change. Now, if, you, if you're thinking about the two greatest existential threats to humanity um, that we've seen, I would suggest that COVID-19 and climate change are those two existential uh, threats I would suggest at the that moment. climate change is much worse than well, COVID-19. Here, here's the thing. COVID-19 threatened to kill about 2% of the population if we got it wrong. Climate change is an existential threat to the human race. Mm. This isn't a panda bear issue. This isn't a I love the environment because it's full of nice animals and pristine kind of places to go and, go and practice Zen meditation and go <laughs> camping. Yeah, we rely on the planet and every small business and every small business owner and their children um, rely on, on, on the health of the planet. And what you see with climate change is those two things, ideology and corporate interest, working together to stop politicians making sensible common sense decisions. So just as it was a sensible common sense decision to double the rate of the job seeker allowance with so many people unemployed... It's a common sense decision to combat climate change now, fast and hard, because it might cost a bit of money now, but it's going to cost one hell of a lot more in 20 years' time um, when many of us will still be running our small businesses, and if we're not, our children will be, than than, than the cost of doing it. The cost of doing it now and all the missed opportunities of not doing it now. Why do they get it wrong? Well, I, and I'd urge your listeners to listen to an ABC podcast called Hot Mess, which Richard Aidy put on. Just just finished recently, and I think in episode three he talked about how the coal industry. He's leaning on some research done by an academic from UTS, the University of Technology in Sydney, who's dug up the documents to show that in 1988, the coal industry realised that that climate change was going to be a challenge for their industry, so they deliberately embarked on a strategy of seeding false ideas and questioning the science and creating debate around the science using organisations like the IPA, the Institute of Public Affairs in Australia and many others around around the world to so cloud the issue that it was difficult for politicians to make the right decision. Now, what's interesting about that is I'm about to tell you, give you the list of, of companies who donated the most in the last election campaign. You don't see the coal and the petroleum industries on that list, very high up that list. And in general, what donations they do make, they, they donate the same amount to both sides. So right. they're, they're, they're playing the game and, and being fair about it. This is a deliberate attempt to disrupt the rational discussion of climate change by questioning the science. So every time you hear a scientist, I'm using air quotes, which we can't see because we're on radio, <laughs> saying something about how the science of climate change isn't in as such, you can be 100% guaranteed that they are one way or the other funded by or supported by the coal industry. Now, that, that, that really stops politicians, and this goes to, goes to the point, right? How stupid could politicians... The view of most people who, who, who believe that climate change needs to be addressed is that politicians must be stupid or corrupt if they're not making the right decisions around that. Not necessarily the case. Corporate interests can have a lot of a lot of sway and a lot of swing. But it's not just the, the 
what we'd call the political right that has an ideological issues, or, or that has a, a, an approach to, to decision making which is driven by ideology, which causes negative outcomes. I want to flag the I want to, to flag the Greens here. Yeah. Back in 2008, when the Rudd government was trying to pull together its first version of a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme, they took an they took a purist view uh, that this wasn't good enough, and they voted it down. That opened the door for two years of argument and fighting, which in turn opened the door for um, Prime Minister, sorry, the Leader of the Opposition, Malcolm Turnbull, to be, be replaced by Tony Abbott, who ran on a 100% climate, climate denial cam- campaign. And that was the green, 100% the Greens' fault. And I think that's one of the frustrations that not only everyday people but small businesses have a lot as well, is that it, it, why do we have to be at such an extreme of, of both cases? We either hear one, one side or we hear the other and it's usually the extreme right or the extreme left and those centrist politicians who seem to have their head screwed on properly and who are listening to both sides and trying to take account into everything, which is where we all want to be. I don't think we want to live in an extreme right society or you know an extreme left. We want to be led by people who are listening to all arguments and make, taking a balanced viewpoint and not necessarily letting their own judgment or the donators actually cloud their, their decision-making process. Look, I think you're absolutely right. And I'll, I'll give one more example about the Greens being driven by that purism. And then I want to talk about workplace relations. And then we're going to go to workplace relations. In the last election, Bob Brown, who was by then the former, lead, uh, the former Greens leader, took a bus tour up to Queensland to make as much noise as they could about, about climate change. That had the effect of rallying the troops in Balmain and other places where people drink the latte that I've got sitting in front of me. Um, but it also had the effect of making damn sure that the voters of far north Queensland who rely on the coal industry for their jobs and, the, and the, for the success of their small businesses, whether they be plumbers, electricians... Anyone. Uh, any, any, any kind of small business, all voted for the coalition because they believed the coalition was not going to take action on climate change and you can be 100% guaranteed and certainly based on most of the studies I've seen of journalists who've gone up there and interviewed people that the decision by the Greens to grandstand on that for their own ideological purposes had a significant impact over the way that election so it's, it, what you're saying there is that it, it's, the, it's the actions of both sides and both ends of the extreme that can impact uh, people's decision-making process. And we all got a, quite a fright by the backflip and the complete, you know, ABC didn't even get it right with who was going yeah. to win the, the federal election. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And that's right. an important part of where we live is that people make decisions swiftly at the last minute um they're not tied to a particular political party long gone are the days where you said well my parents voted liberal therefore i vote liberal and i'm going to be breaking ranks if i everybody's got their own decisions and i think we can have with pride the fact that we've all got um that ability to make a decision far be it the fact that it's actually forced upon us uh but i think that's a good thing i think it's good that we all have to be politically aware we have to make that decision um in order to know who we're going to vote for and that's going to be you know, it's going to change. It's going to change at the last minute as well. Yeah. And look, I will go to... In, I can see you looking at the, the clock. I will go to industrial relations. The big hand is on that <laughs> side. <laughs> look, just quickly, though, the fact that we're not responding properly to climate change, let's look at a seat like Eden Monaro, which, which we're having a by-election for very soon. There are small businesses who are fishermen all up and down the coast. 
20 years' time, there's not going to be any fish stocks for, to sustain their business if climate change isn't arrested very quickly. There are farmers on the Monaro. There's another drought hitting the Monaro. And with the exception of a small number of regenerative farmers, including Charles Massey, the, the, um, the, uh, the father of regenerative farming, really, I suppose you'd say, um, those farmers who are small businesses are going to be heavily impacted. There's a heavily underused port down in down in Eden and there's a whole lot of really interesting industries and manufacturing and light manufacturing that could be going on if Australia was taking advantage of investing in the new industries, not the old industries, which businesses throughout the electorate could be feeding into and sending their products through the, the port at, at, at Eden and none of those things are happening because we are not, the government has not got the policy settings right on acting on climate change. But none of those things are happening either because the media and uh, those people in PR are not highlighting small business as leading the way or being the forefront of an economy in a small area such as Eden Monaro. It's, it's important that we recognise what in each of our districts and each of our areas of Australia, what are their strengths and play to those strengths because we're a massive country. We have such a huge, diverse range of sectors and parts of, you know, sectors of the economy, and we need to diversify. I mean, if anything, the relationship with China, the breakdown there, shows that we need to diversify who we export to and who we have trade relations with. And all of those decisions impact small business. Now, I'm going to come around to workplace relations because this is something that it's almost bizarre to hear a Liberal Prime Minister turn around and say, oh, okay, well, maybe we should look at this. Maybe we do need to, not in terms of strengthening it, not in terms of squashing um, enterprise agreements or or the very things that give uh, the employees power, but finding a balance. Now, good luck. I, I don't even know where to begin, but it's important that we have professional associations and and those who represent industry and small businesses at the table and I think that's something that's changed. I think with uh, Kate Carnell and Peter Strong from COSBOA being constantly part of this legislative change that's happened so quickly because of COVID-19 that there's more um, understanding about what their role is um, and what we need to see is small business engaging more with those people who advocate for them. Look, it's a very, it's a very good point, and that also highlights a problem, an ideological problem with the Labor Party, uh, one of the problems of the Labor Party. So the Labor Party is, I think, stuck in its history. It sees itself as the, as the party of public education. I was listening to... I saw a post by Tanya Plibersek the other day celebrating, quite rightly, celebrating the achievements of, 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 of public education, but really trying to own the public in- education space for Labor. Do a quick analysis... Only half the shadow cabinet went to public schools, right? The majority of them went to systemic... Yeah, but what school do their kids go to? That's not publicly available information and it's not entirely appropriate, but we certainly know that people like, even as far back as Richo, Richo's kids went to Shaw. Richo's kids went to an elite school. But you can't say that just because um, they went to a private school that singing the praises of public school, that that's just hypocrisy. Well, I think you can say that if you're trying to position yourself as the party of something then you need to actually be the party of something. And this leads me to the trade union movement and to industrial relations. So the trade union movement has 17% of the population are members of trade unions. They have much more than 17% of the vote at the ALP national conferences and a whole lot of influence driven by the fact that the trade union movement gives a lot of money to the to the ALP. Uh, and certainly, you'll you'll never really see exactly how much they gave they gave it because Why? both both political parties set up these they're called associated entities, which are basically entities to wash money through 
you can make your donation to the associated entity and it comes out the other end in the hands of the political party, but who's on the register of, of donors, it's the associated entity, not you, so we can't really tell. So but unless you're a developer or a real estate agent or someone someone involved with development, there's yeah. no transparency about who's giving money? Uh, you can choose to not be transparent. So Mineralogy at the last election gave $83 million to Clive Palmer's party. Um, a company called Sugalina, which is owned and run by a philanthropist, Isaac Wakel, gave $3 million to the Liberal Party. Pratt Holdings gave about $1.4 million What's to... What's Pratt Holdings? Uh, Richard Pratt's company. Richard Pratt's company. Who's Richard Pratt? Uh, famous... Uh, industrialist. Well, where does that put us? I mean, wh- who is who is representing? We don't. This is a very good question, Alexi. We've got professional associations that we give money to, but that's really under the guise of them representing just our industry. We've only got two people who represent, in my opinion, who really represent small business at the federal level, at the policy level. We've got plenty of fantastic advocates like Angela Vithulkas and people in the media who are supporting small business. Um, but we've got Peter Strong, we've got Kate Carnell. Uh, Kate Carnell is actually not... She's not part of a political party. She's just uh, an advocate in that role, an independent role. Uh, and Peter Strong represents all of the Council of Small Businesses Australia. So it's all of those associations. That's it. That's all we've got. Well... That that may well be all, 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 all the small business uh, world has got. But I think there's an opportunity here coming out of the behaviour of the trade union movement, which we're seeing just at the moment. You mentioned that the, uh, the, 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 the Prime Minister is starting to look like he's making some more practical decisions around industrial relations. That's not driven by the Prime Minister. That's driven by the ACTU and the Business Council of Australia. The ACTU has made a decision that it can get more done, not through the Labor Party, but by direct relationships, uh, direct negotiations with the Business Council of Australia. Much of the good response that came from government out of COVID came from the ACTU and the Business Council getting together and saying, this needs to be fixed, let's fix it now. Exactly, and let's make some decisions quickly. I'm just going to take you there to a break. We're just going to stop uh, here on Small Biz Matters with Triple H 100.1 FM. We're going to break for the news, but we're going to come back after the news to continue this discussion. What is essentially broken about our economy and our legislators and the decision makers that that are making that impact small business? It's a robust discussion you hear on Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back after this. And welcome back to Triple H 100.1 FM. You're live in the studios with Small Biz Matters with Alexi Boyd. And today we're in discussion a robust discussion, might I add, about the impact that COVID-19 has had, not so much on our everyday business takings, the fact that they're in the toilet, but more about us being aware as small business owners what the policymakers are doing. Yes, some of the, I guess, policy decisions that have been highlighted in today's program have been very positive. Um, We're very lucky to be in a place where we had the advantage of having a bit of a lag time with the... um, the growth of this disease and we've been able to uh, squash it somewhat and those decisions have been great from a health perspective and they've had massive impact on us on a, as a small business. But now's a great opportunity to look at the small business landscape with a real blank slate and take into account what small business is experiencing on a level, day-to-day level and push policymakers to be more understanding of that and make some major policy decisions. Now, just before the break, Jeremy Goff and I were speaking about workplace relations and how the influence of 
donations by uh, non-individuals is does impact and does have a, a big uh, way is a, a, a big mechanism for the change of industrial relations, which ultimately affects small business. So, um, Jeremy, you were mentioning before the pro, before the break about donations and how um, the ACTU or, or big trade unions have made major donations to one particular political party, which means that those interests are taken care of. Why do you think it's so important to ensure that all political donations are transparent and corporate corporate donations should be removed from the picture altogether? Yeah, look, I think the three things that came out in our conversation before the break was that politics is... The reasons for bad decisions is that politics is, is heavily dominated by ideology and heavily dominated by corporate money. And as a result, the the the, the representatives of the small business sector who are highly competent people don't get enough voice simply because the incentives in the political system are designed to make sure they don't get enough they don't get enough voice. So how are we going to change that simply by removing something like a, a corporate donation f- facility? So I think there's actually there's actually three things we need to do. First we we just absolutely need to ban all corporate political donations. What's that going to do? Well, how's that going to help small business? What it does is change the change the power balance. But but I want to talk about all three you need to do this you need to you need to put in place three pillars of a program to reset the incentives in our political system. That way we don't have to sit here and argue for, oh, Mr Prime Minister, you need to listen more to small business or Anthony Albanese, you need to listen to small business. Why isn't small business being included in this and included in that? Um, it's not like they're not either. I, I had to cut short uh, uh, a nice chat I was having with Peter Strong because the Prime Minister's office was calling, literally. He had a, he had a meeting set up to, to discuss some of the response to the, the pandemic and, and, and Cosboa was involved in that. So it's not like they're not being consulted mm. and, not, and, and it's not like they're not having an effect to the extent they can, but, this, but the incentives are skewed towards big business, ideology and the 1% of people who are inside the political system themselves. Well, let's talk about that 1% because I think that um, anybody in small business would say, well, all the decisions are being made in Canberra, they are in the ivory tower, they really have no idea about how small business functions. So how can they possibly make um, educated policy decisions? <clears throat> yeah, it's a, look, it's a good question. It's something that gets said about has been said about Canberra for as long as I can remember and my, my political memory goes back to probably 1975 or something. And it's and and I can't remember a time when that wasn't it wasn't said. I don't think telling people in Canberra they're not listening to people in in the real world has made the slightest difference. So again, we need to change change the incentives. The three things I think we need to do, and I'm happy to talk through each of them in turn: ban all corporate political donations. That implies allocating a proportion of public money to each party in a fair way to enable political campaigning. To go on. Hang on, are you talking about tax dollars? Yep. Oh, nobody's going to agree with that. Well, it's interesting because the question is, do you want corporate interests to dominate how advertising works or do you want uh, the... No, the political parties can just operate with less money and they can live on the smell of an oil rack like lots of other small businesses do and they can be more agile and they can pivot faster and they can be better, better at making, you know 
decisions based on very little funding. That's that's how the rest of us operate in the real world. Why can't they operate like that? So, no, I don't want them to have I, any I think, for taxpayer dollars. I think dollars. Mr Murdoch might, and Channel 9 might be a bit upset about that because I imagine they make quite a quite a decent amount of money from political advertising d- down the track, which is another factor which we can't go into. But they're not a small business. Today. I want to see the small businesses who that's are right. the small newspapers and regional papers not go out of business because political exactly parties right. aren't making donations there. So the three things we need to do, ban all corporate political donations, Disclose all other donations, which which will be individual donations only, in real time. At the moment, it takes nine months. The rules are that it takes nine months to disclose. That's utterly ridiculous. As in, as in, an election campaign is going on. Politicians are making policy pronouncements, and nobody gets to see who's paying for them mm. until after the election is decided. Until nine months after the election is decided, and by that stage, the world is. And I'm pretty sure on. any WordPress site could happily display that on the website as, as real time donations are happening. It's it's dead easy. It's mm. dead easy. I mean, as you say, there's probably about 150 people listening to this program who are. Vaguely adept at IT, who who would know how to how oh, to make I can that do happen? It. Yeah, that's right. Great. Well, we'll put you in charge of doing it. That's oh, great. Okay, excellent. Awesome. Let's talk to the prime minister. The third one is <clears throat> this goes to the one percent. I don't know if you know, but almost all the staff in political offices who, who are all paid for by the public purse, almost all of them are actually political apparatchiks. What does who, that mean? Well, it means you've decided to make politics your career. You've probably worked for the Young Liberals or the Young Labor. You've been a campaigner for the Greens. You've, you've been doing various things like that. You've worked your way up. You might have been in the trade unions and worked your way up. There's a lot of trade ex-trade unionists in, in Parliament now. Uh, and then the next step is for you to get a job in a minister's office or an, an, an MP's office and learn the trade, learn the trade of politics so you can be good at being a politician before you then go for pre-selection to it's, the Senate. It's not or, a trade. Or, or your seat. Politics <laughs> is not a thing. You can't, you, <laughs> that's just weird to hear you say <clears throat> that that's, oh, I went to TAFE and I learned politics. It's, like, it's, not, it's not a trade. It's, <laughs> Sorry. It's a publicly sponsored it's a publicly funded apprenticeship for, for political aspirants. Well, how do you fix that? Because, so, well, you, actually, I'll tell you how you fix it. Because councils fix it. What you find in, in when you're working with people um, in council on a day-to-day level and they're the ones who are working the council, operating and not necessarily the politicians in charge of making the decisions, but the people behind the scenes who are implementing change, they tend to be... Um, you know, they tend to be in that job for a very long time and they're, they're experts in their fields, they're experts in marketing or, or horticulture or, or land management or town planning and they've all got robust education behind them to maybe able to implement those decisions. So what you're suggesting is that should happen at a federal level. Well, those people that you're talking about in the local council level, uh, their equivalent in, uh, are in federal federal departments. departments and in state departments. So who are you talking about? I'm talking about people who are actually in the minister's office and the MP's office in parliament doing press releases and running the politics and doing all the dodgy back deals and the handshaking and the the, the horse trading that goes on in politics. These are political staffers doing politics, getting paid for by the by the public purse. They are not necessary they are not public servants. There are a few people in there called DLOs, departmental liaison officers, who are actually public servants and their job is to, as the name suggests, liaise with the department and they are not politicals, but there's only one in every minister's office. The other 15 or 7, whatever whatever number is, staff in a minister's or shadow minister's office are politicals and they are paid for by the public purse. So my solution is we don't allow any political staffers to be paid for by, by the public, public, public purse. So who pays for them? So the public 
purse should pay for career public servants to service the ministers and the shadow ministers in their offices. And to be experts in their in field. In parliament and, and to be chosen by the, the ministers or shadow ministers for the expertise that is, that is required. Um, but if the politicians and the political parties want political staffers inside the political offices, they need to pay for it out of party funds. And if you, if you put those three measures together, take away all corporate donations, make all donations uh, transparent. transparent in real time mm. and take out that career path for career politicians, you will change the incentive structure so greatly in terms of political decision-making that those who don't have voices at the moment will have a much greater voice in the decision-making because the incentive will be to get policy right and implement it correctly based on for fact. the benefit of people based on fact as opposed to for the benefit of my political career. This is not to say that I think that politicians shouldn't be paid as much as they are and this is not to say that I think there shouldn't be political staffers in political parties. That's that's how politics works. But I don't see that the public should be should be paying for that. Yeah, no, I, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, but you could flip it the other way and say, well, in that case, we shouldn't have uh, someone in the like of Kate Carnell being being paid by the public purse because she's an advocate and she represents small business. Um, and therefore, because she's an advocate, she's really just a lobbyist on behalf of small business, ergo a politician. Now, you can't sort of have it not one way and not the other, but I mean that's a that's a debate for for another time. But I would suggest to those of you who are listening out there, and just if you've tuned in now, you're listening to Small Biz Matters here on Triple H 100.1 FM, and we're speaking to Jeremy Goff about the broader political landscape that's been laid bare as a result of the crisis of COVID-19 and us being a hell of a lot more aware of about what's going on in terms of policy making decisions at a federal level, and. What I just wanted to wrap up with was ways in which we as small business owners can be more aware of the political landscape. So just some good examples. Um, Follow and read and and be aware of advocacy groups like COSBOA, the Council of Small Business Organisations Australia. Uh, What is Peter Strong doing for us? What is Kate Carnell doing? There's also in each state there is a a small business commissioner that supports small businesses as well. Um, Just start to get to know your local politician, particularly if they're a backbencher because they're really available to you. They haven't got a portfolio yet. They're just working their way up the echelons and they're more, um, I guess, <laughs> you can be your own lobbyist because you can get hold of them and you can have meetings with them and explain to them what the issues are that you're facing as a small business owner. And in a way, that's a way that we can have a voice as well. So I'd encourage people to do that. But definitely make sure that you're part of a professional association or part of a local business group that represents. So don't join these business groups that are just there to create networking and create, you know, BNI style, here's the dollars that are associated with our group, but actually those that advocate and talk to politicians and talk to local, state and government, federal governments about the decisions that they're making and the impact at a local level. And then look at the federal level and the advocacy groups that support you. I'm not suggesting that you have to suddenly join 15 different memberships and throw away your money and, and, and support that way, but being aware and engaging with them is so important and it doesn't take a lot of time but it takes practice just to help understand what's going on. Because if you're not involved at a policy at, at, at that level, how can you possibly complain about policies when you haven't been involved and you haven't made any attempt to change or influence them as well at, at, you know, at the state, federal or, or local level? That was a bit of a rant, wasn't it? I've got nothing else to say. <laughs> 
Well, we might finish up here on Triple H 100.1 FM. Jeremy, where can people find out more about you and what it is that you do? Oh, I suppose just look at my LinkedIn my LinkedIn profile. Uh, and my company, I'm, I'm a small business owner myself. My company's name is Cloud6, so that's www.cloud6alletters.com.au. Well, thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to welcoming you back in the studio for another robust discussion with the next crisis, which is coming in <laughs> July. You've been listening to Triple H 100.1 FM. We'll be back next week with another couple of fantastic guests.